Welcome, welcome. You were listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And we've got a real cool guest today. She's sitting on our couch. Thank God people are starting to sit on the couch a little Yay. bit more. Eh? Yeah. We were going through a, a whole phase where someone would look at the couch like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to sit there. Anyway, our guest today is Lee, and she is a registered massage therapist, veteran, longtime registered massage therapist therapist. She's also a massage therapy educator, and she's done some work with the college as a peer assessor. And I think that's a big part of what we wanted to do today was get in here and hear about the peer assessment process. And this is great for anyone that has not gone through it so far. It's kind of staying with our latest theme about all the stuff that happens at the college or or dealing with the regulatory bodies, starting with the podcast episode we did with Lydia Yermakova, a lawyer who deals primarily with with regulatory matters, uh, with members and the college. And then we also did a recent podcast with a nameless therapist who is also an investigator for the college. Well, he wasn't really nameless when we did the podcast, but we had to go back and take out his name out of... uh, out of good faith. Yes. Hey, everyone. It's Amanda, registered massage therapist here in Toronto as well. And Mark's already introduced everything. So I'm just going to sit back and let our guest, Lee, who is sitting on the couch. Um, Before we get into what your role was as a peer assessor, uh, let's hear some background about you. Tell everybody who you are, what you've been doing. (laughs) Well, that's kind of a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Doesn't have to be short. My name is Lee Kelp, and I'm in my 35th year of practice. I've graduated and became a massage therapist in 1984, and I've been in active practice ever since. And along the way, I've done lots of other things connected with my practice as a massage therapist. So I've taught in massage therapy colleges since 1993, and I've also been a peer assessor. I'm terrible about dates, but I believe I started in about 97 and I was with the CMTO as a peer assessor until about 2017. Just for everybody listening, by the way, who thinks peer assessors are scary, you can't see Lee, but there's literally nothing scary about her. (laughs) She's a... Petite enough to sit on our couch and be totally comfortable, and she's been smiling since the minute she walked in here. So there is nothing scary about peer assessors. No, I'm really little, so really, I'm not very (laughs) scary. Uh, I hope that people do know now, or they've heard, if you haven't been peer assessed, perhaps you've heard from some of your friends who have been peer assessed, that it's not meant to be a scary process. And you know, we are all massage therapists, and I think massage therapists are by nature and training really pretty kind people. Now, when we work for the college, we have a job to do and we have to do it properly and we have rules to follow, so we we must do that. But it's not meant to be scary. It's meant to be actually educational. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I got into it because I'm a teacher, I'm an educator. So in that capacity, part of my goal is to further the profession to help people to keep up with their education, 
because in the 34 years I've been practicing, a lot of things have changed. And if I hadn't kept up, I would have been in a terrible mess by now. Mm-hmm. My first thought was to talk a bit how the peer assessment process started and how I got involved with it. Sounds I think great. that's a perfect place to start. Okay. When I became registered, we did not have the CMTO. We had the Board of Directors of Masseurs of Ontario was mm-hmm. our title. And we have been regulated, as everybody knows, for 100 years now, since 1919. So we were with the board at that time, and my certificate of registration actually said Lee Calpin Masseuse. Wow. And it was my second one. The first one I received said Lee Calpin Masseur. So I called the board and said, please, I'd like to be female again. (laughs) (laughs) And they sent me one that said Masseuse. And at that time, I said to them, you know, the trend is to have politically correct names for professions that don't rely on gender. We have don't have firemen anymore. We have firefighters. We don't have policemen. We have police officers. So why are we masseurs and masseuse? Mm-hmm. And they said, yes, they supported that idea, but it had to be okayed by government of Ontario. Stop this right now. Are you telling me that you're part of the reason that we don't have to be called masseurs and masseuses? <laughs> I don't think I can take credit for it. <laughs> I don't know. It kind of sounds like you're part of this. this is before the RHPA. Yes. This is with the Drugless Practitioners yes, Act. Yes, we were right? under the Drugless Practitioners Act, uh, along with chiropractors, physiotherapists, and and I, I think either osteopaths or naturopaths. I think it was osteopaths. And so the four professions were under that Drugless Practitioners mm-hmm. Act. So when everything was being reorganized by the government, by the Ministry of Health, and they were creating the RHPA, Regulated Health Professions Act, and our board of directors and our OMTA, which was our association, worked very, very hard to make sure that massage therapists were going to be included in the RHPA. A lot of people now would think, oh, we don't want this. There's so much governing, so much governance. Why did we ever do this? It was really important at the time because when this new group, this new act was being formed, we knew that the medical doctors would be included and the dentists and the Mm -hmm. nurses. There was no question about that. It was not a sure thing that we were going to be included. Our organizations had to put together a really good proposal because a lot of the members of parliament would think, massage therapist, who the heck's that? Mm-hmm. That's not medical. And other groups that applied, not everyone was accepted. Naturopaths who were included in the previous act did not get accepted to RHPA. And they have struggled all these years to finally get recognition. Shiatsu therapists wanted to be registered. They didn't make it. They asked if they could get in sort of on our coattails. Mm-hmm. But we found that their scope of practice did not match up with ours. So we couldn't make that work. Right. So shiatsu therapists are not a high-profile profession today. If we hadn't become members of RHPA, we might have faded away. If we weren't considered a regulated health profession anymore, from 1919 to 1994, we had been under the board of directors. If we had been left out, we might have faded away as well. Mm -hmm. Good point. So a lot of people kind of resent all the regulations. We have RHPA, the Massage Therapy Act, the Privacy Act, the Consent to Treatment Act. And a lot of massage therapists feel like we're overwhelmed with legalese. It's interesting, though, because massage therapists also fight so hard to be taken seriously and to be looked at as medical and as part of healthcare versus 
this service, like shiatsu therapists are now looked at as right. more service and spa type mm-hmm. places. Um, so yeah, I mean, you can't really have it both ways. You can yes. either be <laughs> recognized but regulated or possibly fade away. That's... Exactly. That's, I believe those were the choices. Mm-hmm. And so our organization worked really hard to make presentations to be accepted. And it's not easy because when you have to do a speech in Ontario Parliament, if you've ever watched any of the videos of what happens in Parliament, you know that half the members are sleeping, the other half are on their cell phones. Uh, there weren't cell phones so much in 1994, but it's hard to get their attention and to, to mm-hmm. get them to take us seriously. So our organizations worked really hard to be accepted, and we were. So everybody wanted this. We were regulated health professionals. We were proud of that. We wanted to continue being regulated. But when all these new laws came in, a lot of people felt overwhelmed. This is not what they thought it was going to look like. Mm -hmm. And so one of the first things that kind of shocked people who had been members for a while was the peer assessment process. And I was teaching at a school at the time, and students were coming to me and saying, other teachers have said to them, that's not legal. They can't do that. I'm not letting anybody into my practice. They have no right to do that. And they, students would ask me because they were looking for a reaction. And because I was teaching legislation at the time, and it was the new, all the new laws, and I was up on them, and I said, they do have a right to do it. It's in the act mm-hmm. that the CMTO can visit you at any time as an investigator or in any other capacity. Mm-hmm. They haven't been doing it, but now they're going to do it. But they've always had that right. And when students would say again that, well, this teacher tells me I'm not letting anyone into my practice. How do you feel about it? And I said, well, I'm proud of my practice. I'm proud of my clinic. I think mm-hmm. I'm doing things the way they're supposed to be. And so it doesn't bother me at all. I would be quite happy to show off what I'm doing. And if I have left something out or if I'm making some error, I'd like to know that so I can fix it because I want my practice to be the way it should be. And look at it from the public perspective. Aren't we happy that there's somebody paying attention to Mm. what our medical doctors are doing, what our dentists are doing, what the physiotherapists are doing? Why should we be any different? You have to... There's going to be good and bad practitioners in oh, every course. field. And wouldn't you want the ones that are doing sketchy things to be called out on that? I would. Yes, absolutely. Because our profession had made such an effort to be included, we kind of felt like our, our position was a little bit precarious. We were one of the first regulatory colleges to have a peer assessment process. We were way before the chiropractors, way before the medical doctors. As a matter of fact, some other colleges came to us eventually for advice and help in setting up their peer assessment process. So we were one of the first ones to do it because, you know, it's like the rental car. When you're number two, you try harder. And we felt like we had gotten in perhaps by the skin of our teeth into our Mm -hmm. HPA, Mm -hmm. and we wanted to be the first to obey all the rules and have everything in place. So how I found out about peer assessment, a man that I had taught with, his name was Doug Cressman. He was a wonderful teacher and a wonderful person. And he was one of the first peer assessors. And he wrote an article for our association magazine about what peer assessment was like and how it was working and why he enjoyed doing it. And I thought, that sounds really interesting. I want to get in on that. Mm -hmm. So I applied 
And again, I was maybe a year or two after the whole process had originally started. So the original peer assessors had broken the ice for us. They had done the hard stuff because a lot of times they were assigned and people, it was all new. So some RMTs were really frightened. Mm-hmm. Some were were even aggressive. Like they barred the door. They wouldn't let them in. Mm-hmm. They were greeted with dogs. <laughs> One peer assessor told me that she went somewhere. It was in someone's house. Practice was in someone's house. She knocked on the door, opened it, and there was a goat. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea why there was a goat, but there was a goat. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So, you know, it was hard on the peer assessors and hard on the people who were the first ones assessed because they didn't know what to expect. And I always thought that they imagined we were going to come in and if they had made one error, we would rip their certificate of registration off the wall and say you're forbidden to practice. And it's not that at all. It's interesting that we started out by saying peer assessors are not scary. Mm-hmm. You said typically massage therapists are kind people, but um, those kind massage therapists were meeting the peer assessors with dogs and goats. So exactly. I don't know how I feel about our <laughs> profession right now. <laughs> I, it, was, it, it was bad at first. And I'm lucky that by the time I got in, massage therapists were getting accustomed to the idea. They have had a friend or a colleague who'd been assessed and they had found out we weren't really ogres and it wasn't that scary. <laughs> but still... All the years I did it, there were people who would say, I'm so nervous, I didn't sleep all night. You know, even though their practice was lovely and everything was perfect, mm-hmm. you know, I understand that. I feel the same. You want to show your practice in the best light. We're proud of what we do. We want people to see that we're making a, an effort and doing a good job. So people are nervous, but every time I left, and I can say this like for 20 years, people would say, oh, that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Yeah, exactly. You know what I compare it to, and it's not the same at all, but um, do you drive across the border Mm -hmm. often? You know when you're pulling up to talk to the border guards, even though you've done nothing wrong, you don't have drugs hiding in your car, Mm -hmm. but you get up there and you suddenly feel like you're under a microscope and they're looking for you to say something wrong. Yeah, yeah, you feel guilty. And you just get so nervous. It was the same when I had my peer assessor coming, even though I knew that, as you said, I... I was proud of what I was doing. I didn't. I wasn't doing anything wrong. My files were impeccable, mm-hmm. but there was still this sort of feeling of like, what is she going to talk to me about? What is she? and like I said to you off mic, she was lovely and it was very educational and we had a really good conversation. And when she left, I was like, why was I so nervous (laughs) about that? Mm -hmm. Because there was nothing bad. And they really, well, you and all the other peer assessors really are there, as you said, to educate people and to help them, not to tear their certificate off the wall and tell them you are not fit to practice. Just like the border guards, although I think some of them really are looking for Maybe they're bored. <laughs> they, they might be. <laughs> they I mean, might be that bored. That type of thing will always happen when there's someone in an authoritative position and you don't know what to expect mm-hmm. or your your fate is kind of left in someone else's hands like mm-hmm. that, that that anxiety can possibly build. Yeah, but I think with peer assessment too, what people have to remember is your fate really isn't in the peer assessor's no, not hands. At all. And like that person really is a peer 
That's right. And they are, they have been in your shoes. They are in your shoes Mm -hmm. and they're just trying to help you. You know, if there's something that maybe you didn't know that you were doing that could Mm -hmm. be improved or that's, that's really all it is. That exactly. And another thing is that the peer assessor has forms from the CMTO. We used to have big sheets of paper, you know, like about 14 pages that we had to fill out. Now they're doing it electronically. You know, we come into the modern age and peer assessor will often have a tablet or a laptop with them and it's all done online. We don't have to mail things to CMTO anymore. It's sent electronically. They get it immediately. And the person being assessed gets a copy of exactly what was said mm-hmm. and has a chance to respond. So that if you feel that the peer assessor has misrepresented you or missed something, said you didn't have something and you really did have it, you have an opportunity to say that. But the peer assessor just reports what he or she saw. There are no conclusions. There are no, like, this is a bad therapist. This is a wonderful therapist. They just answer the questions that they've been assigned and send it to CMTO. There's no judgment involved at all. And from our experience, being that we own a continuing education company, like I think Mark always says this on the podcast, the other thing we do is our continuing education company, Conant Institute, we have people come in um, for different reasons uh, to take courses. And we've seen people who have come in because they are told they have to take certain courses Mm -hmm. based on their peer assessment. And even the people whose peer assessments were not very great, mm-hmm. they're still given an opportunity to fix these things. Yes. Again, this even the CMTO, when you've done multiple things sort of incorrectly, they're not taking your certificate away. Mm-hmm. You're given the opportunity right. to correct these problems and continue your practice. Well, yes, that's a good point. And that's exactly what happens. The peer assessor, I would report exactly what I saw. I answer the questions that have been given me. I don't make any uh, decisions. I could make a recommendation if there was something I saw that I think should be better, could be improved. I can make a recommendation. I would tell the therapist that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not a secret thing. You know, I I wouldn't talk behind your back. If I am making a recommendation on paper or on computer, I would also say it to your face. But on based on what the CMTO receives, they can do several things. They can say, yes, this is fine, file it, and you don't hear from them for another five years or more. Or they could say, there's something here I'm not happy. We're, you know, Your peer assessor said that your health history didn't meet up to standards. They would then send a letter or an email to the therapist saying, you promised your peer assessor that you would create a better health history that meets the standards. Could you please, within 30 days or whatever, send us a copy? You send them the copy. Good. You've met the requirement. So that's a very simple thing to fix. Right. The decision might be made that they really don't understand how to do record keeping. It's not just one little thing. They really need to know more about record keeping. They might be required to take the CMTO's online record keeping course. Mm -hmm. The therapist would have to pay out of pocket for it. And I'm not sure of the price right now, but we can look that up pretty easily. But it's not outrageous. And you're given a time frame in which to do it, which is quite reasonable. You complete it successfully. And again, you're back, you know, in exactly the same position. You are in, you know, full compliance. With better records. With, with your records. <laughs> with, with your records. So you've learned something. 
So there are degrees of what might be asked for. Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody was deficient in numerous ways or another scenario, if some, it was recommended that somebody take a record-keeping course and the person didn't do it in the time frame, they might be given another chance. It, it sort of goes on that, you know, you're given a chance, you're given another requirement. Eventually, if the person refuses to comply, they could suspend their registration. But you really have to be non-compliant mm -hmm. to, for right. that to happen. I assessed one person who had obviously, I didn't know when I went that she had been assessed before. We're not told when it's a reassessment. And she had been assessed before and she was found deficient in her record keeping, apparently took the courses, still was not compliant, and she was required to work under supervision. So the owner of the clinic had to check every week that she was doing her record keeping appropriately. She had to come to agreement that she would set a time every day that she would do her record keeping. So again, even with non-compliance, she was given another chance and another opportunity mm -hmm. to improve. And so there is no snap decision about you messed up, you're out of here. Right. You're given numerous opportunities to make the improvements that CMTO required and to get your practice in compliance. All right. I thought maybe I'd talk about some of the best experiences I had and some of the less yeah. good experiences. Before, before you do yes. that, can you give us information on the training that you had to undergo from the college mm -hmm. to become a peer assessor? Yes, good point. Originally, we had a two- two or three day, a whole weekend of training. And I think they're still doing the same thing for new assessors. And then every year we had a conference where we had a full day of even the people who had been working for years. We had to attend every year for updating, upgrading, because there are new laws coming in all the time. Right. And whenever anything new comes up, that gets added to our yearly uh, refresher course. They do their best to keep everybody up to speed. That having been said, peer assessors, like everybody else, are human beings. Sometimes I've heard that they tell people things that are in error. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going secondhand because sometimes RMT will say to me, well, my peer assessor told me I have to do this. And I say, no, that's not correct. So I always try to back up my statements with fact because otherwise it's just my opinion against somebody right. else's opinion. So I say, let's go to the standards of practice mm -hmm. and see what that says. And I'll find the relevant standard and point it out to the person. This is exactly what the standards say. So if somebody told you differently, perhaps you misinterpreted what they said, or perhaps they had misinterpreted. I mean, peer assessors, we're humans. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we make errors. And so my advice to people when they're being peer assessed is to have their standards of practice there, either in paper form or on their computer or on their tablet. And if there's something that they think is wrong or maybe is different from what they were taught in school, my teacher said, you have to do this. And now the peer assessor is telling me something different. Can we please go to the standards and point out to me where it says that? And that should clarify it. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's the thing. When the peer assessor comes, it is supposed to be a conversation. It's yes. not the peer assessor telling you, do this, do this, do this, no. do this. You're having a conversation. So there's no harm in you saying, well, I don't understand this. This doesn't make sense to me. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm sure the peer assessor isn't going to be offended because, as you said, you're humans and, of course, you're going to make mistakes too. Yes, and it's supposed to be an educational process. Right. So, you know, that's what I advise people. I'm, I'm going to stick a, skip ahead a bit now to say how peer assessing is done now, how it's changed from when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, and as I say, I'm terrible with dates, everybody knows there have been a lot of changes at CMTO over the last couple of years. Right. You know, a new council kind of reevaluates things and sees where changes have to be made. And peer assessments had been done pretty much the same way for many, many, many years. And so the council started looking at it and saying, where does this have to be revamped and updated? Hmm. And that was happening just before I resigned as a peer assessor. So I did see the new process. And as I say, one thing they did was make it electronic instead of paper. So that's coming into the modern era. But they also streamlined it a lot. There were a lot of questions on the old forms that really had nothing to do with the laws or the standards of practice. What's an example? Like an what's... example. They would have things that were not mandatory, but were, quote, nice to have in your treatment room, like Kleenex okay, and it. a wastebasket right. in your treatment room, things like that. Yes, we all think that those are useful things. But we went back and looked and said, no, that's not in the standards of practice. Let's go back to the standards and just go with what is in the standards of practice. And so a lot of the uh, other things, like a fire extinguisher. Yes, you probably should have a fire extinguisher or a sprinkler system for fires, but that's not CMTO's concern. That's public health and safety or whatever in your municipality. Right. So they took a lot of those things out because they were extraneous. They didn't really have to do with our standards. And they've made it much clearer. So what happens with the peer assessment, as those who have been assessed probably know, is the the member, as they say, the RMT, is notified by email, by the CMTO, you're going to be peer assessed. You're Mm -hmm. going to be hearing from the peer assessor. You acknowledge that. The next thing that happens is the peer assessor contacts you either by phone or by email and says, I want to set up a date for your peer assessment. I remember what a scary call that was for me. <laughs> like it was my first one. So I was just, I I assumed her call meant like we had to book an appointment like soon. Uh-huh. So I was thinking like, okay, I'm looking at my calendar for like next week. She's like, oh no, no. Like we're looking like four weeks out. You know, you have time to prepare for this. I'm like, oh, okay. Like I, I was thinking like, okay, how's next Thursday? She's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Like let's, how, how's next month? <laughs> well, they, they get their list, I think a you know, a month or a few weeks in advance and start right. contact. First of all, you're contacted by the CMTO. Mm-hmm. So you know this is going to be coming. And then when the peer assessor contacts you, you know it's real. You're not, this is just some nosy person pretending to be a peer assessor. You really are expecting the peer assessor. Peer assessor contacts you. They give lots of time in which to make an appointment But at some point, we do have to make the time in our schedule, and they're Mm -hmm. saying about three hours. doesn't always take that long, but they are asking for three hours. And they realize that we have busy schedules. We can't just tell our clients not to come next week or something. You know, we have to plan for this, and the peer assessor does too. And so we make that appointment, and the CMTO sends us a list of exactly what we have to prepare. 
I mean, it only makes sense because some people practice in more than one location. So as a peer assessor, I don't want to get to your office and then have you say, oh, no, all that stuff's at home or all that stuff's at the other office. So the CMTO gives a list of what to prepare, and usually this, the peer assessor goes over that again to make sure that you understand and you've, you're going to have everything mm-hmm. available. And then you have time to prepare. You know, it's not a surprise visit. It's not meant to be a trick or anything like that. No, and it was, as I said to you off mic, the email gives you literally everything. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no surprises in my peer assessment. Good. I knew, like, how many files that she was going to look at. I knew what she was looking for in the files, mm-hmm. you know, that she wasn't, you know, reading it bit by bit by bit to see if, you know, I use proper grammar. Like yeah, it was, exactly. you know, she's just looking that I've got the appropriate information. As you said, the, that the health history form I was using was up to standards, that I was actually um, in my record keeping, putting all of the information that's supposed to be there, mm-hmm. the the date, the time, the assessment, you know, everything that was supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was no surprises. It mm-hmm. was actually a very, pleasant experience that I had. Good. Well, now that they've kind of streamlined the process, which I'm glad to see, it's all standards of practice. And the peer assessor's form goes from standard one all the way through. So standard one is about hygiene and cleanliness in your office. So that's the first thing the peer assessor looks at is the physical environment. Is the office safe? You know, there are there any wrinkled rugs that people are likely to trip over? Are the floors clean? So the whole environment, but most specifically our treatment room. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all in standard one exactly how hygiene should be managed. In addition to that, they look at the washroom that the clients are going to use. Right. And even if I'm not the one responsible for the washroom, I'm working for a larger clinic or a spa, and cleaning the washroom isn't my job, but still, it's my clients who are going to go in there. You know, I should go in there occasionally and make sure that there aren't a dozen paper towels lying on the floor, that the soap container is full, you know, because it's my responsibility to see that my clients have this facility. Well, and we are regulated health professionals. Yes, it may not be your job to clean, but because we're held to these certain standards, if somebody isn't doing their job, it is our job to make sure that all of this still does meet the standards. And I know that that was really stressed in my peer assessment that the college cares most about um, autonomy when it comes to the practitioners. You can't Mm -hmm. just pass the buck like, this is not my clinic, this is not my fault, because you know what the standards are. And Mm -hmm. so it is still your responsibility to make sure everything does meet the standards. So yes, that includes the bathrooms, because would you want to be a client somewhere and go into a dirty bathroom with no toilet paper or soap? Exactly. That's just gross. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we have to take these responsibilities. I found that, oh, I'd say 98% of massage therapists are fantastically clean. Their rooms are beautiful. They take pride Mm -hmm. in their room being clean, meeting all the standards. And they go a step further. Most people want their rooms to be attractive to people, to be welcoming Mm -hmm. and warm looking. And that was rarely, rarely a problem. The only time I saw an issue, and you sort of mentioned it, was when somebody worked for a large company, perhaps um, a multi-practitioner clinic mm-hmm. um, or a big spa, where someone else was responsible for doing the cleaning of the room. I saw a couple of places where 
the massage therapist was responsible for changing her, her his own sheets and face cradles. But when I'd say, well, the fleece that you have under your under your sheet and under your face cradle, how often does that get washed and changed? And sometimes they say, oh, I don't know. Management looks after that. Oh. Oh, because, you know, sweat and oil percolates through the sheet onto these yeah. fabrics underneath. So there's a chance that these are not getting changed exactly. often enough at all because nobody knows. Right. So we're supposed to have maintenance log where we check off when we have made repairs, how mm-hmm. often we clean, how often we maintain equipment. So the table, the hot stones, the towel caddy, whatever it is you might use. But if somebody else is doing it, we still should know how often it gets done. That should still... Absolutely. If someone else is keeping a maintenance list, we should have access to that. Mm -hmm. When the peer assessor comes, I might say, well, I'm not the one responsible for that. The manager is, but she gave me a copy Mm -hmm. of the maintenance log so I can show you how often all these tasks are done. So if you're being peer assessed, be proactive and have that. Right. You shouldn't have to run all over looking for it while the peer assessor is there. It, it shows that you as an RMT are aware of when these cleaning tasks get done. You're still taking mm-hmm. responsibility for knowing that your clients are in a safe and clean environment. So that's standard one. That's you know all about cleanliness and safety. And then it goes through the different standards. And as you said, the major one is the record keeping. It sets out exactly in the standard how our record keeping should be done. Mm-hmm. There are a few issues with the record keeping. At one time, as a peer assessor, I was told to look at three files. And then that changed and I was to look at eight files. The numbers have been different over the years. The last I heard, and it could have changed, but the last I heard, the RMT was not to choose files to give to the peer assessor. The peer assessor was to have access to the file drawer and pick files at random. Okay. Is that what they did with you? No. When it when I had my last peer assessment, um, they asked me to pull my most recent 10. Okay. So I guess it's changed since then. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was by date. It was look at your last 10 clients mm-hmm. and pull those files. So I'm not sure what they're doing now because it's been a couple of years since I've been involved. Mm-hmm. But any of those ways are acceptable and the peer assessor will be told at any given time what process they're supposed to be using. Mm-hmm. So as RMTs, we should be prepared that any of our files could be looked at. Right. The issues with the files, there are a few of them. And the biggest one, this is my biggest hint. Everybody listen up. This is my <laughs> biggest hint for today. In maintaining files, what happens with a lot of massage therapists is we have a file drawer full. And some of the files are people who we perhaps haven't seen in months. Right. Now, in some professions, let's say a surgeon. If I go to a surgeon's office, I'm examined, I'm operated on, I'm uh, there's a post-operative examination, and then I leave. And I'm guessing that the surgeon then writes in their file, discharged. They probably archive that file. Right. Okay, because you don't go back every week to a surgeon. Right. In our profession, it's different because we often treat people multiple times. And if I'm treating a person for something specific, let's say a neck injury, and I treat this person 10 times and the neck injury has resolved, I could then write discharged and put the file in my archives. 
However, lots of our clients choose to stay on with us. Right. You know, I have helped this person resolve the neck problem, but now they say, well, you know, I have a lot of stiffness from work. I don't have to come in every week, but I'd like to keep coming every month just to maintain Mm -hmm. so this problem doesn't get bad again. So it often happens that we have these ongoing files that we never discharge. Maybe this person who's been coming for maintenance every month, and then they don't come for two, three months, but the file is still sitting in my drawer. So this may be a fairly old file. If the peer assessor happens to choose that file, because it's old, it may not live up to the current requirements. Maybe when I started treating that person three years ago or whenever it was, it wasn't required that I have consent to sensitive areas. Right. I don't have that in the file. And I did a few times treat that person's low back and glutes. So if the peer assessor looks at it now, if, she, if the peer assessor happens to pull that as one of the files, I'm going to look like I'm in noncompliance. Right. Because I treated that person for three years. There were several glute treatments and there was no consent for sensitive areas. Now, if that person were to come back now... Now I know the rules about treating sensitive areas, and if I had to do that, I would get the appropriate forms into the file, but I haven't looked at that file for a long time. So really, that file should not be in my current file drawer. I should put discharged and put that into an archive. So that's my biggest suggestion to therapists, that perhaps once a year we should do this. Go through our file drawer and look at any files, people that we haven't treated in a couple of months, a few months, mark them as discharged and inactive, and archive them. First of all, it's easier to keep your file drawer neat and organized Mm -hmm. if you only have your current clients, but all Also, if a peer assessor wants to look at your files, they're all current files all being dealt with in the most current way. So they will have consent to sensitive areas in them. They will have all the current requirements. Peer assessor could come to my place right now and choose files at random and they would all be current. They would all meet the standards because anybody I'm not currently treating, the files have been archived. Interesting. I'm learning right now. (laughs) (laughs) I think I need to clear out my file drawer. Yes. Well, I've heard, I haven't seen it because I don't have television, but I've heard about this Japanese lady, Marie Kondo. Oh, we just watched <laughs> her wait, last wait, night. Wait, wait. Right. Who advises getting rid of all the things that you're not currently using. Or no, actually, that don't bring you joy. That don't bring you joy. <laughs> you don't have television. No, I don't. Tell me the story here. Did you ever have television? Yes. Did you? When did you retire the idea of TV and why? When the male resident of the house left... I told him to take his television with him. Mm. (laughs) I see. So that tells you a little bit about my former relationship (laughs) and and my dislike for television. Gotcha, gotcha. So that was 1997. I do have access to the internet, so I do get the news and so Mm -hmm. forth, but I Mm -hmm. don't actually have television. Gotcha. Okay. All right, sorry. I know, completely off topic. There's a lot of people people that would be very surprised by that, because I think TV is something that, people just do now like it's actually it's a pastime like people just watch tv i know people have multiple tvs in their house guilty (laughs) (laughs) and no and i don't use a cell phone either so i don't um weird in that way too (laughs) 
I'm behind in the electronic age. But anyway, to get back to what we're talking about, where were we? (laughs) So best piece of advice, really, for RMTs who find they're going to be peer assessed, the two major areas of focus are standard one, the hygiene and safety of your treatment room and your whole office. Mm -hmm. And the second major focus is on your files. Right. Before the peer assessor comes, if you have not Marie condoed your files before this time, (laughs) (laughs) this is the time to do it. Two, you're not going to throw away your files. You have to keep them for 10 years after the last appointment. Mm -hmm. But you archive all the files of people who you are not currently seeing, all the files that don't meet current standards, then go through your files and make sure that your record keeping is up to date. Make sure that you have obtained consent for sensitive areas if it's necessary, Mm -hmm. that's in all your files. And that should take a lot of the stress away from it. Yeah, because if the peer assessor is just pulling any files at random, if you have Marie Condoed, now that her name is also <laughs> a verb, <laughs> if you have already done that, then you have absolutely nothing to worry about because anything they pull will be up to date and perfect. Exactly. The other thing I see with the files, and I, I, I teach, so I've even seen it in our student clinic and I keep trying to get improvement there. Although we spend so much time teaching and learning assessments, I find a lot of massage therapists do not assess. Mm -hmm. It's a big issue. And I think massage therapists misunderstand what assessment is to some extent, because there's so much time in school spent on memorizing 300 orthopedic assessments Mm -hmm. with funny names that nobody can remember. (laughs) And um, those assessments are not always appropriate. We don't do them all the time. So people often think, well, there's no reason to do an orthopedic assessment, so there's no assessment. Well, there is assessment because active range of motion, passive range of motion, observation is an assessment. Palpation Palpation, is an assessment. Yes, but to start off, I see my client walk in, they come down the stairs. I can see that this person is having difficulty navigating the stairs. Right. That's an observation right there. I record that. I see the way the person takes off their coat, the way they walk across the room. I'm already observing how this person moves. These are observations. This is part of my assessment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be orthopedic tests. Right. And as you said, palpation. I mean, I forget what which of the standards it is now, but we palpate for tone, texture, uh, tenderness, temperature. That is done during the treatment. But it's part of the assessment. It Mm -hmm. shouldn't be noted in the treatment. It should be noticed in the assessment section. So you have done assessment, even if you haven't done orthopedic testing. Right. And people, I think they do it, but they don't write it down. Many, many years ago when I was first a peer assessor, I phoned somebody to announce I was going to arrive. And this person had been in practice for many years. So when she'd been in school, practically back in the 60s or 70s, they didn't have an assessment course. And so when I phoned her, she said, yes, I understand you're coming. I might as well tell you now that I don't do assessments. Mm-hmm. I didn't learn how to do them. I don't do them. I said, well, okay, we'll see when we get there. So when I got there, she reiterated that she didn't do assessments. I said, well, then how do you decide what the treatment will be? Do you treat everybody exactly the same way? 
She said, no, of course not. You know, I address whatever problems they had. I said, well, how do you know? I said, well, I notice how they stand, how they walk, how they take off their coats, how they get on the table. I said, you're assessing. So you're assessing them, yeah. You're assessing them. Write that down. And she was shocked. She thought it was about orthopedic tests. She said, really? I said, yes, that's your assessment. The only way that you've fallen short is that you haven't recorded that. So record those observations. There's your assessment. And, you know, so we all assess or we all should be assessing. We just need to record it in the proper little space on our health history. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the major things. A lot of people aren't doing treatment plans. And that's an area that needs to be worked on. I've thought of doing a continuing ed course on treatment plans, if anyone's interested. (laughs) And the other part, usually the treatment is described correctly. If Remex is recommended, it's described. Where I see kind of silly things when it says result. One of the things on the form asks for the result of the treatment. And therapists write down good or great. I say, how do you know that? Well, I ask the client, how do you feel? And the client says, great. I said, well, that's not really what we're looking for. What I perceive should that should be is we should go back to the original complaint If the complaint was a headache, the result should be, is the headache gone? Is the pain reduced? If the complaint was stiffness in in the back and the person couldn't bend over to tie their shoes, what's the result? Has range of motion mobility of the back improved? And if so, by how much? Mm -hmm. So it should relate right back to the original problem. And that's what I'm looking for when it says result. Not great, not good, but What improvement did you make? Was there a change in the range of motion? Was there a decrease in pain? And so that's what the result should be. Not just saying, well, I said what I've said to many peer assessors when they ask the client, how do you feel now? And the client says, great. I laughingly say, well, maybe they mean the massage was so terrible, they're just so glad it was over. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not. Well, I mean, great. Also, Most clients, when they get off the table, they they do feel good. You feel good after a massage. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean it accomplished the goal that you came in for. Exactly. So, yeah, saying great doesn't really tell you much. I feel great after I get a massage, Mm -hmm. too. But Usually. Yeah, but usually. (laughs) (laughs) I had one recently that I didn't feel great, so that was a disappointment. But, yes, we usually feel good. And as an assessor looking at it, I advise people that the result should be more objective. Interestingly, I will tell you this, you know, as you said, sometimes peer assessors um, maybe misinterpret or disagree. I had a peer assessor tell me that in that section, she was looking for the subjective information. You should have both. You should have, you should have post-treatment objective. Uh, yes, you should have post-treatment. So, and actually, our forms that we use here actually say subjective and objective, so mm-hmm. we can separate the two. But on a lot of my forms, I had, you know, some subjective, but I had a lot of objective. Like, I would do sort of a post-treatment, like, quick assessment to see, right. you know, has the range of motion improved or this or that. But I didn't have as many subjective remarks. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm really looking for the subjective stuff. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I would have thought the other way around. You want to know why? Because a a big part of uh, sometimes the college will receive uh, complaints 
about a therapist's treatment. And sometimes oh, it's yeah. related to things like post-treatment soreness or blah, 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 blah. And so in that case, the college really wants to see that you've documented some sort of post-treatment evaluation. Right. How they and then were that feeling. says yeah. that in that it might state that you've discussed things like post-treatment soreness and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. That way the patient knows or the client knows this is what I should expect. And therefore, this is not a case where the therapist has probably caused some sort of damage and hurt me. And therefore, it kind of stops them from doing some sort of complaint that really Makes doesn't sense. go anywhere anyway. People should also not feel, I guess, ashamed could be the word, to write down if a client after the treatment doesn't feel good or if they feel sore, like that should be documented. And I think sometimes why you're getting people writing good is maybe they don't want to actually write down that their treatment wasn't that effective, mm-hmm. but that's okay. We're also not magical. One treatment doesn't mean the person is healed and they never have to come back. Exactly. So and if if there were issues or there are continuing issues, certainly it should be documented and a goal set for the next treatment. Mm-hmm. And certainly I would do that with a patient if the person after the treatment said this still isn't moving or I'm sore there, I would discuss it with them and set new goals for the next time. Mm-hmm. So when I would talk to therapists and they would say, well, yes, I do that. I say, yes, you're doing it, so document it. You know, it's not that as an assessor, I was saying, where you're not doing what you're supposed to do, most often people were doing all the right things. They just weren't recording it. And they were the ones who came to that realization. They would say, well, of course I do that. I I just haven't been writing it down. And so that's that's what it is. Mm -hmm. There's no requirement in the results that we have to say subjective and objective. It doesn't say that in the standards, but I think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Client reports reduced pain and um, objective, let's say it was the neck, neck rotation was 45 degrees to the left, now it's 60 degrees to the left, so that's an improvement. And so I think it's valuable to document both. Mm -hmm. That's much more useful, not just for the CMTO, but for the therapist themselves to look at next time and say, yes, I was able to increase range of motion by this much. Let's see if we can do it do better this time. Everything should be documented. I've I've learned that the hard way a couple of times where I I've got a very small practice. Um, I've been practicing for eight eight years now, and a lot of people have sort of followed me clinic to clinic. And now I've got a very small practice where I maybe see eh, fifteen people in a week maximum. It's just a very quiet, and I like it. I like this pace right now, and. So there's sometimes where I have a client that I know so well, you know, I've been treating this person for eight years and I might not write something down because I guess in my mind, I think I will remember. And then they come in and I'm like, there was something I wanted to do with you and I didn't write it down. Mm -hmm. So fail on the record keeping there. You should document everything. Well, not only that, if you ever have to create a progress report or Mm -hmm. a report for some sort of third party, whether that's a lawyer or an adjuster or whatever the case is, it's really hard to have an accurate progress report with having this type of information. If you haven't documented documented. everything, yeah. And I have had to do that. I have had to write reports for medical doctors. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, my records were 
were pretty decent yeah. to do that. We got that a lot because we have a record keeping course. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions that uh, we always get in that course is, well, you know, and I'm only doing relaxation stuff. Like what, sh what should I be documenting here and blah, 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 if I'm not doing so many assessments and everything else. And I always can kind of answer it like this. When I take my car to oil changers or Jiffy Lube or Mr. Lube or whatever the case is, I'm going there for an oil change. And so this person is coming here for relaxation. But but at the end of the day, you know, it, yes, I understand it's part of their sales tactic, but they also do like a, a 50 point inspection on my car mm -hmm. and then they'll tell me everything that might be wrong with it, everything that might be right with it, at least within those 50 points. And then they'll make suggestions mm -hmm. on, hey, maybe you want to do this. Maybe you want to change this valve. Maybe you want to do this to it. Maybe you need to uh, flush your flush the fluids or whatever the case is. And at the end of the day, it's up to me as the consumer to decide, yeah, this is what I want to do or not. But it is, th they feel like it is their responsibility. Yes, they're doing it as a sales job, but it's their responsibility to give me that information. The same way as a regulated healthcare professional, you might only be coming here to de-stress or relax, but it is part of my professional obligation that if I'm seeing something that could be problematic or I'm seeing something that is problematic that I should inform you that these things are here and these are options for you in terms of treatment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As I say, I think assessments is one of the biggest issues. When I work for a school and so we every year we see the results from the CMTO exams, mm -hmm. entrance to practice exams, and typically every year the all the schools stations. all the schools do less well on the assessment stations. Mm -hmm. It shows up in the files. I see so many files where there are no assessments. I remember one um, young therapist in particular. She was had been in practice for about a year, and she was working at a spa. And I started looking at her files, and I could see that she was very nervous. Finally, when I was about halfway through, she said, I can't stand the suspense anymore. You have to tell me. I know my files are terrible and I failed because I don't have assessments, but I'm in a spa and there's just no chance to do assessments. I said, first of all, you haven't failed because this isn't a pass-fail situation <laughs> and you're not in trouble. And I said, you have made some observations here which are acceptable. They're not great. You, you know, you could be doing better, but it's acceptable. What I said to her was, I think you're disappointed in yourself. I think you have higher expectations of yourself. Mm -hmm. So maybe you should start doing some assessments or maybe you want to work one day a week in a different environment where you're doing more clinical work if, if that's what you feel that you need. But she seemed to be disappointed in herself that this is something she had, no, she had learned and she was not using it. That assessment thing just tends to be an ongoing issue. I'd like to give an example of a worst-case scenario, and this wasn't as a peer assessor. Several years ago, I was asked by an insurance company to look at and evaluate a file where there was a lawsuit. So I agreed to do that, and they sent me this huge binder of, of documents. And what it was was a massage therapist who was also doing sport therapy, and he had treated a person, he had treated a young man, the young man alleged that he had recommended remedial exercise and the remedial exercise had caused him harm. And so there was a law case. And this insurance company was representing the therapist and they wanted my opinion. So I read that file and it wasn't a very big file. I read the file and 
It talked about his assessment and the treatment he had done, but it did not show any remedial exercises being recommended. Certainly didn't document any any remedial exercises. So I was left with a, with a quandary. Had he actually recommended remedial exercises that had harmed the client? We don't know because there was no documentation. So was the client lying or had the therapist actually recommended exercises but had not documented them? No way of knowing. So it was totally up in the air. There was no way of defending that therapist. Mm-hmm. See, in that scenario, I'd imagine the, the next logical step would be, if possible, let's take a look at other patient files and see, is this a trend where this particular mm-hmm. therapist doesn't document remedial exercise, which can mean maybe they typically don't give remedial exercise. Mm -hmm. So if it's consistent throughout many patient files that there is no remedial exercise documented, then possibly, you know, that's a scenario where I just don't give remedial exercise, hence it's not documented. Or they don't document it. But let's also take a look at all the other files that are there and see how thorough the documentation is. So if everything else is thoroughly documented except for remedial exercise, you know, you might be on the safer side to say that this person probably doesn't prescribe. Mm -hmm. But the only thing was, was that he was a sport therapist. So one one would expect that would be part of his therapy. Mm -hmm. So one way or the other, the fault was with his documentation. Yes. As it turned out, the insurance company had not just sent me his file, but had sent this huge binder of files. Apparently, this young man who was suing him for malpractice was suing, I think it was 11 other healthcare practitioners as well, mm-hmm. that they all had all done him harm. Everything from the podiatrist who took off his calluses to the psychiatrist who said that he was uh, schizophrenic, they were all getting sued. Yep. So there was an issue with this client that he was hitting everybody for as much as their insurance was worth. But being able to either defend the massage therapist or say he was in the wrong was very difficult because he did not have adequate files. Exactly. So hopefully you and I will never be in the situation where a mentally disturbed client is accusing us of crazy things that we haven't done. But our records, our documentation is our defense. Mm-hmm. It's at most times your only it's defense. Your only yep. defense. Right? And when anything comes to you, whether it's from the college or from a lawyer, one of the first things that they're going to want to do is take a look through your patient records. And the let's, that, that kind of establishes you know, your, your level of competence. Exactly. And that's where it starts. And mm-hmm. it can show a trend of you know, your work as a therapist. Therapist. And if it's showing that it's inadequate, well, then it's probably right. And so that's what I want to get through to massage therapists, that this is not just a tedious chore. It, well, it sort of is a tedious chore that we have to do every day documenting, but there's purpose to it. Mm-hmm. And it's our own best protection. It tells us what we have done. Three months later, if there was a complaint, we can look back and see exactly what we did. And we can show, as Mark said, that this is what we do consistently. This is what I always do. I document it. So there's no reason why on that one occasion I would have neglected to do it. Exactly. 
because this is my pattern. Mm -hmm. This is what I always do. So it is our best defense always. It is a tedious chore, but it is a a chore with meaning and with purpose. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we have to keep that in mind when we're documenting. I mean, and considering we have such uh, stress-free jobs otherwise, (laughs) just one little thing we got to do. And even as part (laughs) of the course, and I think one point that always kind of makes everyone's ears perk up a little bit is, I say, like, take pride in your, your report writing. This is a medical legal document. As yes. soon as they hear, like, medical legal document, I never thought of it like that. Then it changes the nature of which you, you know, you go about it. Yes, absolutely. And when dealing with insurance companies or lawyers, you know, we present ourselves as professionals. Mm-hmm. Not many people have had the experience of having to go to court for a client, and I had to do that once. So that was an interesting thing. But again, they had all my records. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it has to be something that you will be proud to show as representing your practice. And it is our best defense for everything we, that we do. But as Mark said, if you consistently show the same things, it shows a pattern. It shows this is the way you run your practice. And so it's very important. I'd like to talk briefly about the continuing education. Before we get yes. into that, did you go to any of the focus groups when yes. they were to, when they were doing the college insurance program? Yes. What do you think of the idea? Were you at the groups when, when, when you were there, were they kicking around the idea, not just having a peer assessment, but also contacting patients or clients that, that the therapist had seen to kind of get feedback on that, as well as contacting colleagues of the therapist to get feedback and then rolling that all together along with the peer assessment? I heard about that. That was, you know, being talked about just before I retired from that job, but mm-hmm. I don't know where it went from there. Okay. Um, yeah, because I heard that, well, I went to one of the focus groups and they were they were kind of throwing out that idea yeah. as well. I was at a focus group that had to do with the new self-assessment tool. Right. So I'm interested in seeing how that's going to play out because all we do is give input, but we don't know what the end result of it will be. I don't think the self-assessment tool will change all that much from the sample that they had up there. Oh, I don't either. It actually didn't change from when they did the focus group, which I was kind of shocked at. Well, the old peer assessment, I remember when it first came out and it was pages and pages of every manipulation, every technique and everything we ever did. I remember doing it on a train coming over from Montreal, you know, pages and pages of tech marks. And I'm really glad that's changed because I don't think assessment should be about whether you remember how to do this specific technique that you never use in your practice. Hmm. You know, this is more of a, this is more general, it's more philosophical, if you'll say, that than item. You know, that's a that's part of it that I didn't like, actually. I didn't like, I didn't like the, the reduction or lack of inquiring about foundational knowledge Mm -hmm. like it used to be there like you said maybe overkill but i feel like this one doesn't touch it nearly enough and so i'm interested to see how it's going to play out in setting goals for continuing exactly that's what i'm interested to see there was an acknowledgement at the focus group that at different stages in our career, we're going to have different goals. Yep. So that somebody who mm-hmm. graduates from school may, their goal may be something like improving their record keeping mm-hmm. or taking new modalities. Whereas somebody at my stage, after almost 35 years, I'm not very interested in learning new modalities. Right. I think I've learned all the modalities uh, that I want to do. So 
I would obviously have different goals at this stage, and you would after the years that you've been in practice. So I think it leaves room for that. Mm-hmm. I like the idea that it's going to be annually. Yes. Because what I was seeing with people that I assessed, we'd look at their self-assessment tool, and if they were in their third year, they had totally forgotten what they had stated as being their goals and were off on some other uh, path altogether. I don't think people were using it the way it was intended exactly. before because there was the numerical values. It was all about collecting numbers. Yes. And I don't think anybody was actually referring referring back to their self. I shouldn't say anybody. That's very general. But there were a lot of therapists who weren't even referring back to their self-assessment tool when choosing well, what type of continuing education. Well, that's what I mean. There was, no, there was no direct connection between your self-assessment the, exactly. tool and the continuing education versus what they're doing now. So what they're doing now is what physios do in Ontario, kinesiology. I'm a registered kin as well, so kinesiologists have to do it as well. And so it's an annual self-assessment tool. What I like about there is actually, like I said before, it's got a lot of foundational knowledge in there and that gives you room to work with your action your action plans a little bit more but this directly links so when you are suggesting your self-evaluation you're saying hey i don't know much about um advertising i don't understand the advertising standard then this can create the action tool or the 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 action plan to now go acquire knowledge on you know the advertising standards in the massage therapy act and the standards of practice and so on so there's now a direct link to it but before mm -mm. no there was no link and what i would find people a lot of people did not understand the self-assessment tool i'd get to a peer assessment and the person had two and a half years into their cycle. And they'd say, well, Ken, you were, you were coming, so I filled out the assessment tool last night. <laughs> Which should have been done two and a half years ago. should have been done two and a half years ago. That's not exactly what we had in mind. So I'd say, well, okay, we've filled it out. Let's talk about now how we're going to use it. But people did not understand it. The difference now, it's online. So CMTO knows if you've done it or not. They don't have to wait for three years or wait to the peer assessor visits you to find yep. out whether you've done it. Mm-hmm. So you have to set your goals and then you have to do it online so they see right away what, what you're up to. I'm really interested to see how it's going to play out. And I think all of us who teach continuing ed are interested to see how it's going to play out. I don't think it'll make too much of a difference, to be honest with you. There's always people that cheated on the concept of acquiring 30 credits totally. in a three-year cycle yeah. anyway, and this just makes it, you know, just as easy for someone to do that, right? I mean, it's it's no it's no more difficult or, or, or no more easier to do that. I think anyone that's in, interested in education will still keep going. Mm-hmm. Um Anyone that was just in it for the numbers, well, you know, they'll find ways to create action plans that don't require them to pay out for a course or, or to whatever, do much which is absolutely all, yeah. fine. Um, there's there's certain things to consider, though. So, for example, if you are taking courses that are certain modalities, certain the, the education. So when you when you're acquiring new modalities into your practice, what you should also be doing is once you obtain that ed- education before you implement it to your practice, is to contact your professional liability insurance provider and, right. and let them know that hey, I'm adding this. Can you add this onto my policy? And a number of them will want 
proof of education. So for example, uh, cupping, because I see this a lot in the Facebook groups. Everyone's like, what cupping course should I take? And there's always a couple people that respond, don't, it's a waste of time, it's a waste of money. Go buy the cups, go look at some videos and practice it yourself. And my response is always like, that's a great way to learn cupping, but if you want to add it to your liability insurance policy, most of the liability insurance providers are going to say, show me proof of education. And some of them won't even allow it to be online. I mean, it's got to be an in-class mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. those are the types of things that I you want to consider I think people need well. to consider too, it's quality assurance, right? Yes. The whole purpose of doing the self-assessment tool and doing continuing education is to make sure that therapists are providing quality treatments Absolutely. and assessment to their their patients. So who are you really cheating if you're filling out the self-assessment tool saying, you know, I do everything perfectly and, you know, not taking any continuing education? Mm-hmm. You're you're not doing any service to your patients. You're not doing any service to yourself because mm-hmm. eventually people are going to see that you're not the best therapist for their needs. And keeping up to date is something that the onus is on the therapist, but it shouldn't be a burden. Wouldn't you want to be at the top of your profession? Oh, exactly. And, you know, as a peer assessor, I saw so often, I saw the whole scale of therapists from the most conscientious to possibly the least. Mm -hmm. But I must say that the majority of therapists that I visited and there were you know, a few hundred over the years, were very conscientious. Mm-hmm. They wanted to their practice to be the best it could possibly be, and they were very proud of what they had achieved. And it was a delight to meet them and delight to work with them. At the other end of the scale were the few who were totally deficient in what they were doing. There weren't very, very many, I'm very pleased to say. There were the few. The major fault was no, no record-keeping. Mm-hmm. They may have done ha- good hands-on work. I have no idea. That wasn't part of what we were mandated to to find out. But there was there were a few people with absolutely no files, and I can remember two two or three in particular. Same excuse. I just moved, and the box with the files got lost. Mm. <laughs> and after all, I start to think this isn't even original anymore. That's like the dog ate my homework. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like the dog ate my. And homework. if that's now the case, good luck because now you're going to have to report to the privacy commissioner. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, I just sort of looked at them and said, "Well, I have nothing to assess. Then I will have to." Report that back to the CMTO. Yep. I felt as a peer assessor, it wasn't my place to write any judgment about it. I could just report on the facts. There were no files. Okay. I can't judge whether your excuse was true or not, whether the dog ate the files or they, <laughs> they got lost off the moving truck. I would just report that I didn't see any files. I saw the same thing once with a therapist. First, I walked into her office. She said, is it okay to keep files electronically? And this was years ago when that was just starting to be a trend. And I said, oh, yes, absolutely. They must be uh, password protected and backed up. Mm-hmm. Yes, no problem. So he said, well, I've printed out three files for you. I said, okay. They were per- they were very generic, very basic, perfect. And, okay, well, they're all the same. So I said, now can I see a few more? Well, he searched all through his computer. He couldn't find these files. 
only could find those three files. And he said, well, his computer guy had changed things he didn't know where they were. And he would get back to me. I said, well, you can do that, but I have to send all this into CMTO. All I can say was that I only saw three files. My supposition was that he wasn't keeping files. Mm -hmm. I can't prove it. All I could say to CMTO was that only three files were available to be seen. So, you know, there are people who just do not keep files. You know, I strongly urge them that this is an important part of our practice. It's not a waste of time. If people are working for a clinic or a spa that doesn't give them enough time to do their paperwork, then I really think that's something that they have to negotiate. I think it's important. And it's again, professional it's, obligation. yeah, exactly. As the professional, you can't just say, oh, they don't give me enough time. Exactly. You have to figure it out because regardless of what your employer or the place that you're a contractor at, regardless of what they do, you know what your obligations are. So just do it. Stop making excuses. You know, if they required you book people on the hour and you have seven, several in a row, then you have to schedule break time when you can get caught up. Contracts are another great big topic, and that's not our topic for today. But I really think that people should negotiate that when they're going to a job to make sure that they have adequate time for the record keeping, that they have adequate time for their interview and their assessment, that they aren't doing so many in a row that it's impossible to fit in these necessary tasks. I think that's something we should negotiate before we set foot in a place. Mm -hmm. I'm really glad to hear, though, that you had more positive experiences than negatives. Since Mark and I have started Con Ed and we are meeting all these therapists, I have also been very pleasantly surprised. More therapists that we meet are very conscientious, as you said. They want to do the continuing education, even when these the numerical values disappeared last year. Mm -hmm. There were, yes, some therapists who said, oh, we don't need CEUs anymore. But we still get a lot of repeat students, a lot of people coming mm -hmm. in who just... They want to learn and they want to take the courses because they see the value in them. Right. So I've been, yeah, very pleasantly surprised at how many therapists take their jobs very seriously well, yeah. and they want to do it the best that they possibly yeah. can. That's Well, that's what I found as a peer assessor. Most people were very conscientious. They were very proud of what they had accomplished in other clinic, their record keeping, everything to do with their clinic. They took it very as a serious profession, which it is. I was I really enjoyed the job because I met so many wonderful therapists. I learned from some of them too. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I would see something and think, boy, that's a better method. I'm going to try that myself. Mm -hmm. So it was very rewarding. I was always very proud of the members of my profession. The odd one who did not come up to scratch. In most cases, I didn't feel that they were dangerous to the public. The biggest fault was poor record keeping. Mm -hmm. And I saw that as carelessness and perhaps laziness, being too busy and not prioritizing well. But I didn't see them as being bad therapists or bad people at mm -hmm. all. I, one thing that I really enjoyed about the peer assessor was meeting the members of our profession. It made me very proud to call them colleagues. See, peer assessment's not scary. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasant experience most of the time. Before we do wrap up, um, quite a while ago, we've, we've jumped all over topics. You were going to tell us some stories, and you've, you've gone back and told us some. Is there anything that stands out for me? I don't know if we can beat a goat answering the door, <laughs> no. but is there anything that stands out to you as just something really funny or strange or any encounter you had with a therapist that 
is very memorable. I'm trying to think of what would be memorable. Sometimes it was memorable to see the difference between clinics. I remember going into one clinic where it was a, a fairly new therapist. It was basically a physiotherapy clinic. We walked past all the exercise equipment and so forth into a quite large, bare, white painted room with a table in the mid- middle of it. It was clean. It met all the standards, but it wasn't a lovely room. (laughs) And the therapist complained to me that his practice wasn't growing the way he had hoped. And on the same day, I visited another therapist, coincidentally, also in a physio clinic, same thing, walked past all the machines, went into, it was a female therapist, went into her room, and it was painted in soft colors with pictures of dolphins on the wall and soft music playing, and it was just an inviting room. Mm -hmm. She was interesting. She was obviously a high achiever. After I had done the whole assessment, she said to me, well, what's my mark? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I don't give out marks. Well, in school, I always had 95. I said, well, we don't give marks anymore. I said, is your practice successful? And she said, oh, yes, I've been in practice for a year. I'm doing great. I've got lots of clients. It's really great. I said, that's your mark. I said, now you're working for your patients. You're not working for a school. We don't give marks. I can tell you that there were no deficiencies on your peer assessment. You met all the standards. Your practice is your mark now. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Go back to the other young man. His record keeping was perfect. Everything was fine. I had nothing to find fault with him, but yet he wasn't being very successful. From a legal standpoint, he had met all the requirements but he wasn't going that extra mile to create an environment that clients would come back to. Mm -hmm. So it goes above and beyond what is legally required. Part of being a successful massage therapist is being able to be attractive to the clients you want to have, right? So just because the guy in the white room, he might be the best therapist, Mm -hmm. he might be amazing technically, but he's maybe not attracting the people because he's not doing all those little extras. You know, I always tell people, I think my clients just like me. It's Mm -hmm. not, I think that it's, you know, they've all just become comfortable with me. They like coming to see me. And even though Mark might provide them with a treatment just as good or even better, they like me. So they keep coming back here. There there is a personal connection. And I would say it's not just that they like you. They obviously like the style of work that you do and the results that you obtain for them. Mm -hmm. And maybe another person would approach things in a different way and it might not suit that person. Right. So, you know, we build our own practice. We come out of school all with the same basic information, but we go in different directions. We develop a different kind Mm -hmm. of clientele. And so I saw a lot of interesting practices, a lot of interesting clinics and treatment rooms, but a lot of different styles of practice of people taking massage therapy in a different direction. And I thought that was fascinating Mm -hmm. because as a teacher at the pre-registration level, we have a curriculum to follow Mm -hmm. in accordance with the core curriculum document, what we have to teach, what people have to know before they challenge their CMTO exams. But when I meet students two, three, four years after graduation, many of them have gone in completely different directions. Mm -hmm. Some of them are doing acupuncture, some of them are doing sports therapy. 
you know, it's a wonderful profession in that way that there is so much opportunity for developing a very individual practice. Mm -hmm. I'm never bored. I've been in practice in my 35th year. And I've done so many different things in these years that I'm never bored. There's always something new in the profession, a new thing to do. Yeah. For sure, for sure. We always say this in many of our courses. Massage therapy doesn't have to be a dimly lit room with uh, that smells like lavender. <laughs> exactly. And and is playing. playing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be. <laughs> it can be. And that's what some people want. And there's still room in the profession for that. Yeah. Uh, but we can really take the profession in any direction we want and, yeah. to. And often on Facebook in particular, I see discussions about, I think my body's wearing out. Is there any other suggested you know, job that I could do? Well, if anybody's body was going to wear out, mine could have by now, I suppose, <laughs> after over 35 years. And this was a third career, so I didn't start out as a young person in the profession. But I have been able to find many different things to do that interest me that are still within my profession. Mm -hmm. I haven't had to go out and work somewhere else or take another job to have variety in my life. So I've worked in different types of clinics. I now have my own home clinic, but I've been in medical buildings, chiropractic offices, different venues. I've also been a peer assessor for 20 years. I've been teaching in massage therapy school since 1993, developing courses and teaching. And of course, I teach continuing education. I teach body mechanics and I've gone all over Canada with that. So that's been a lot of fun. So it's all within my scope of practice. Keeps me interested. Mm -hmm. It never gets boring. I'm always learning, but I'm still working within my profession. And yourself, you said you're treating about 15 people a week mm -hmm. now. And I'm doing the same. I'm teaching at a massage therapy school two days a week. I'm in my practice three days a week. So I have a maximum of five a day mm -hmm. and sometimes less than that. But it's all that I need. I don't, uh, I'm not struggling to build a practice. I'm, I'm at the age where I'm thinking vaguely of future retirement. So I'm quite happy to, to um, pare down my practice. And as my body gets older, I don't feel it necessary to treat 20, 30 people a week anymore. <laughs> so it's a wonderful thing about the practice that it can be what you need it to be. For sure. Absolutely. There's so much flexibility. And as Mark said, we do teach that in our business course that mm -hmm. it doesn't, massage therapy doesn't have to be one thing. There's so many different avenues you can mm -hmm. take. There's different modalities, um, you know, even things like teaching and teaching continuing education or writing or research. Like there's mm -hmm. so many things that can be done within our scope of practice. And that is what I love about this career. Mm -hmm. It's not one thing Absolutely. over and over. Day and other day. things like you said, writing, I've written many articles for, for the uh, professional magazines over the years. Mm -hmm. um, at the school I was working with, the manager asked me to bring in my articles. She thought we could show them to the students. I brought her in this big stack of paper, like we could wallpaper the school with these <laughs> articles. So I think they're just sitting on her desk at, <laughs> at, at present time. So, so there's just so much opportunity. You never have to be bored. I mean, if I had been doing so-called relaxation massage for 34 years and nothing else, I probably would have been bored out of my mind by now. But it hasn't been that way. I've done lots of different things. 
And even then, even working in a clinic, it's never boring because people aren't boring. Every person is different. Even if I'm doing a similar treatment, every person is different, responds differently. We have such opportunity to meet and interact with interesting people Mm -hmm. to help them maintain their abilities. I I could never be bored with that. Awesome. I love that. I love hearing from uh, people who have been in the profession for much longer than I have Mm -hmm. and still loving it and still finding it interesting. And it goes back to, I remember when I was about to start massage therapy school, I had probably three or four different people say to me, well, I heard that that profession has a five-year lifespan. (laughs) (laughs) Who says this? And yet, since being a massage therapist, I've met therapists who have been working for 20, 30, 35 years Mm -hmm. and still at it and still loving it. So false, false fake news. It is. And when you think about it, it's an absolutely silly claim. Massage college is fairly expensive. I don't know what they're charging now. but Ballpark about 20 grand, probably. We're thinking about $20,000 in a couple of years of our time that we can't work. So that's another financial loss. Who would put in that much money to have a five-year job? It makes yeah. no sense at all. <laughs> if you look at the statistics, you do see they, they show the five people in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20, and infinity. And it does show a big dropout after five, during the five-year period. If you analyze that, I mean, there are people who graduate and never practice or never practice in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So they show as being dropped out in the first five years. There are a lot of young people who don't really know what they want to do, who try out massage therapy. Maybe they think it's an easy course. They're usually disillusioned with that. But there are people who try it out and it's not for them. Right. And they realize that within the first five years. And they Which drop happens out. in many other professions oh, as well. Of course it does. People bounce around like crazy these days. I don't think anybody, like my parents both worked at the same jobs. Their entire, I say both worked, they're both still working. Yes their entire careers mm-hmm. because they found something and they just stuck with that. That's not typical these days. It's not typical these days. You know, people you would work somewhere until they were 65 and they got a gold watch and a retirement right. plan. And it doesn't happen anymore. No. And statistically, they say that most people have at least three careers in a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so for people to try something and decide it's not for them, I don't think that's unusual at all. This is my third career, actually. Massage is my third Mas- career. Massage yeah. is my third career as well. And even within the, the massage profession, I've had other careers, peer assessor, teacher, writer. Right. So I think it's perfectly normal. So people who, who find it's not for them usually realize that in the first five years Mm -hmm. and drop out. Those who hang in are often there for the long haul. And on our Facebook page, occasionally somebody will mention that five-year myth and ask who has been practicing for a long time. And the page fills up Mm -hmm. with people saying that they have been in the profession for 20 years and more. And I'm always delighted when I see that because I see the names of many people who were my students 20 years ago and are still in practice. (laughs) At the school where I teach, we are now employing two teachers 
who were my students years ago, one a 1995 grad and one a 2005 grad. So awesome. Both experienced teachers. So I'm delighted when I see the people who I call my kids (laughs) (laughs) that are now in the profession for more than 20 years. So that's totally a myth. Well, and this is a physical career, and there are going to be people who do injure themselves and have to change careers. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's going to happen, but that's not the majority of us. Right. That's why I teach body mechanics. Yes. We can segue right into there. <laughs> that's right. So, my, uh, you know, I wasn't young when I started the career. I was over 40 when I started in the career. It was the third career. And I... You know, I hold myself as an example that with body, good body mechanics, we can do this forever. So, yes, people have injuries, and it is a physical job. I think that we certainly have a core of very experienced therapists who have been around for a long time. And I think it's time to re- to retire that myth that everybody only lasts five years. That's it. Today. It's over. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> You did an awesome job at explaining where the peer assessment process came from, what it looks like, why it's not scary. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, I think it it's a really good point for therapists to think about when doing their own or preparing for their own peer assessment is looking at, are you doing your assessments? Are your records up to standard? Mm -hmm. Are you up to the standards when it comes to hygiene and everything else? And just... It really, if you're following the standards, you'll have no you'll problem. Be fine. You'll be and fine. I mean, the peer assessor, the college, they cannot see us do a massage. So the only way we have of demonstrating to them what we are doing, that we are working within our scope, that we're working legally, is our records. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. only time they would ever see or experience a person uh, practicing is if there were a complaint that necessitated an investigation. If they send an investigator around uh, a person incognito who books an appointment, shows up as a therapist, then they get to see what your actual treatment is like. Right. But that's a fairly, fairly rare case. It only happens if there has been a complaint and they want to see if it's really true. They want to back it up and see if it's true. Other than that, they never see us practice. So our records are the only evidence they have that we are practicing in our scope of practice. The other thing I'd say is people have to learn to stand up to employers. I remember being at a conference and it was a big table for lunch. And there were a couple of women who said that they worked at a spa and they knew I was a peer assessor, although I wasn't there in that capacity. And they wanted to ask me something, an honest anonymously, I don't know their names or where they worked. They said that the spa they were working, that the forms for the record keeping were not up to standard. And they'd mentioned that to the manager in the spa. They weren't willing to change what they were doing. And they asked, you know, what's our our responsibility in this? I said, well, the spa is not registered with CMTO. You are. It's not up to the spa to keep their records according to CMTO standards. It's your obligation. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me and said, okay, the message is clear. You know, no matter where we work, we must maintain our standards. If the employer doesn't give you paperwork that complies, then create your own paperwork. I mean, the first choice would be to talk to the owner or manager and say, my peer assessor says that 
we really should change this form. I've seen that often when I was doing peer assessors. And some of the RMTs would actually ask their manager to come in so that I could tell them why the forms needed to update. Mm -hmm. But people were conscientious. They wanted the place, not just their own files, but the files of the place they worked to be up to standard. At other places, people would say, oh, no, the management doesn't care. This is the way they do it. I'd say, well, then you have to create your own forms. You are responsible for your records. You can't blame it off. Well, the boss didn't provide me with the right papers. We are responsible to CMTO and to the public for our records. And if you work somewhere where their record keeping isn't up to snuff, then create your own. Absolutely. Well, I think I think we have all the info that we need. Thank you so much for traveling. By the way, we didn't mention that Lee had to travel from quite a distance to come sit here on the couch. Thank you so much for doing that. Well, it was an easy trip at this time of day, and your couch is very comfortable. <laughs> I, what you're not seeing when you're hearing this is this very small couch that's very close to the ground. And maybe that's why a lot of people don't want to sit on it because they have longer legs. But I'm a very little person, so it's just right for me. <laughs> I, I, need, I need miniature furniture. <laughs> and this worked out well for me. And thank you very much for having me. I hope that we've have some information here that will be interesting to members of our profession. Right on. And if anyone wants to reach out to you uh, about your courses, how can they reach you? Um, You can usually find me on Facebook, on RMTAO, or on Ontario Massage Symposium. I'm a co-moderator on that site. You can also reach me by email. My email is lee, L-E-E dot Kalpin, K-A-L-P-I-N, at Belnet. And I'm always pleased to hear from people. Right on, right on. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for having me. Right on, guys. You've been listening to Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. Peace.